Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Natasha Litbarg. Dr. Litbarg, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hi, just Natasha. How are you, Natasha. then? I'm doing very well. Natasha, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast. How did I get to know you? Well, I saw you commenting on some of my Telegram posts and you said you're a clinician and I'm always really keen to make connections and network with other fellow clinicians. And we started emailing each other and ended up having a really nice discussion maybe a month or so ago. I don't know now. The time has gone by so quickly. And I think we spent like two or three hours talking to one another and it was a really enjoyable conversation. And I mentioned at the end, if one day you were interested in coming on the podcast and having a discussion that I'd be thrilled to have you on and here you are. So welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. We it's were just talking, <laughs> we were just talking uh, before we came on air about how important it is for health professionals to come out and talk about their situation or their experience and their perspective on health and medicine and those kinds of things uh, for people to hear fresh and new perspectives and to also see that there are many professionals, highly qualified and well-educated people out there who do hold differing opinions to the current mainstream view and I know you said to me that oh you know I may not be that interesting to come and, and talk on the podcast but actually uh, we had such a good conversation last time that we spoke um, that I just had to get you on and, and allow you to tell your story so yeah do you want to introduce yourself a little bit talk about your history and your education and what you've done professionally, I think that's a good place to start. Sounds awesome. Thank you so much. So I was born in uh, Moscow, Russia. Well, at that time it was USSR. And I uh, came to this country, worked, uh, and there I got an education, in master's degree in physics, which I wasn't really very uh, fond of, let's put it this way. Uh, so when I came immigrated to this country in 1990, I decided that I wanted to shift my uh, sort of professional uh, interests more into biological side of things, which I thought that I was much more interested in. And at first I was working in the lab as a technician and then as a research assistant. And uh, because my lab was affiliated with a hospital, I realized that I wanted to actually be a doctor. <laughs> And that's something I kind of also wanted to do in Russia, but it was too complex and so I didn't pursue it. But when I came here and ended up in working in this lab affiliated with the hospital, I uh, ended up deciding to go to medical school. And so when I found myself accepted into medical school, I was very, very thrilled. And I thought I was on top of the world and becoming an American doctor and what could be better than that. And I think ever since then, I have been uh, really attached to this idea that I'm a doctor. I'm an American doctor. <laughs> so then, uh, yeah, I finished uh, medical school in 1999. 
I went through a residency in internal medicine and fellowship in nephrology, which is subspecialty in kidney disease, medical kidney disease. And I worked uh, as an attending uh, all my life in academic institutions. And uh, the last uh, probably about 15 years, it was, um, you know, it, in two hospital, two academic hospitals in Chicago. And uh, I have been uh, a very strictly uh, devoted allopathic medical doctor up until I started dealing with my own health issues, which they were not very, very severe issues. But for me, they were very life disrupting. I had horrible allergies, which actually were so severe that it was hard to function and some ab abnormal stomach pains and um you know, I tried all the Western medicines uh, and procedures and things like that, and nothing worked. Mm. And I guess it's a very similar story in a lot of us. And I realized that I had to do something else. And uh, I started, you know, I, I was interested in yoga and Ayurveda. And I can't remember already in what order it came in. But, you know, I guess I first started eating eating organic foods and then, I went through uh, some Ayurvedic cleanse procedures and uh, consultations, and it worked just amazing for me. And I ended up kind of learning about it myself and practicing. I got some. Training and became a 200 uh, uh, RYT, I think it's called yoga teacher. <laughs> and it all happened in the last maybe 10 years. And that's probably, I would say in the last 10 years. So I've been in practice for about 20 years since I graduated my fellowship. And, and um, I would say I started noticing that a lot of things we were doing were not really working and were some of them were probably harmful. But I always told myself, well, I'm a nephrologist. People who don't have kidneys that's it. They need dialysis. There's nothing else you can do for them. And people who, or people who are in a hospital and they have acute renal failure, you know, we are saving their lives with dialysis procedures. So that's how I kind of, you know, I negotiated with myself. But in the clinics, in the patients who were chronic kidney patients uh, who, um, you know, who were heading towards dialysis, usually they refer them to us at the time when they're, you know, more than 50% of kidney function is lost. <clears throat> in those patients, um, I just thought, well, you know, there's all, not all that much that we can do. But then I started talking to them about, you know, things that I myself learned in Ayurveda and, uh, and even some yoga. And what I discovered uh, were a couple things. One was a lot of things were difficult to offer to the patients I dealt with because I worked with a population of people who were mostly quite poor, mostly very poorly educated. And there was this uh, mental, uh, or I should say, I, I don't even know what to call it, but the idea of my patients, most of my patients was that you come to the doctor and they fix you. So when you tell these patients things like, well, you know, you should only uh, hydrate with water or, uh, you know, or I would usually say like, what do you like to drink? And they will say, oh, I drink Coke. 
or pop or whatever and say, well, you know, it's not a good drink. You shouldn't be hydrating with that and say, well, can I drink crystal light? And I would say, no, no, you should not be drinking any of these processed drinks. And then the patient would say, well, what do I drink then? <laughs> so this is kind of patients I had to deal with. And, you know, surprisingly, some of them were open to a lot of ideas that I was able to introduce, but many could not even start comprehending what I was talking about. Mm. And so that was a little bit frustrating for me. <clears throat> and uh, so when COVID came, so there's, that's where I was when COVID came. <laughs> I was sort of trying to introduce certain Ayurvedic principles in my you know, allopathic nephrology practice at the academic institution and dealing with a lot of frustrations with that because really it's very difficult to reconcile these things. Oh, and there were such things as, you know, kidney are damaged by so many uh, chemicals uh, and basically medications that we prescribe, right? And of course, at that time, I had no idea of anything that had to do with vaccines. I did not pay any attention to any vaccines. I was fully vaccinated when I came to this country because I didn't have any records from Russia. And then my child who was born here got absolutely everything. And we, you know, we thought we didn't have any problems with this. I wasn't paying any attention to vaccines. I didn't go into that research whatsoever. And uh, yearly flu vaccines, the only thing I've noticed that yearly flu vaccines that they imposed on us, it was becoming more and more difficult to not take them because I didn't see why I need to take a vaccine. I just felt like I never get sick. I don't need a vaccine. But I never really studied like and a couple years before COVID came, they told us that the only way to decline a vaccine is you actually have to apply for an exemption uh, based on your uh, religious and um, medical. I think I can't remember exactly. But anyways, I I wrote a letter. I got it from my friend. <laughs> And I copied what she wrote and I was like, oh my gosh, there are all these things uh, in these vaccines. Who would have known? <laughs> and then that, that completely escaped my mind. I never thought about it again. As a nephrologist, I don't recommend or prescribe any vaccines to my patients except for hepatitis B vaccine. That is firmly believed that dialysis patients have to have it because it's a very contagious virus specifically for dialysis patients. And maybe we'll talk about it when we get there. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of what, what my life was until March of 2020. <laughs> and it all changed. Because um, you were quite happy doing what you were doing. You were very I, successful. You were no, working in the hospital. I Yeah, I thought that I was on top of the world. I was very well paid i had comfortable life you know i i uh thought i was doing what i loved i was very happy to be in academic environment even though you know in academia here in this country you're not as paid as well as in private practice but for me i thought oh i'm surrounded by this amazing smart people and we always have this you know intellectual discussions and we have uh, you know, all kinds of educational activities. And of course, I was involved in teaching. And I always thought that kidney disease is one of the most fascinating areas of uh, the medicine and very cerebral. And so, yeah, I, I would say it would be quite impossible for me to say, oh, this is like 
I don't want to do what I'm doing. It's it's horrible. It's all wrong. <laughs> but I did have like just by having uh is this wind too noisy for you? Because I'm sitting outside. No, that's fine. Yeah. You the, can hear me well, yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. So so um I did have some inkling that some things were wrong. And I was I, I started telling you about how a lot of medications are harmful for the kidneys. And of course, we see acute kidney failure a lot of times, but there's probably much more than that going on. And um, I already felt, you know, like I knew that statins were not the greatest medications, even though they're not necessarily considered to be nephrotoxic or proven to be nephrotoxic. But like every time I would try to talk to the patients about stopping their statins, I felt very uncomfortable because immediately I would get a feedback either from the patient or from their primary doctor who would say, what are you doing? This patient is a vasculopath and they have, you know, all this kind of cardiac or stroke or whatever history. And you cannot stop studies because that's like going to save their life. And somehow I knew there was something wrong about this, but it it was one of the things that I remember I was thinking like, um, yeah, I wish I could stop all the statins, but I never could do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were some other medicines I could stop and I could say, okay, this is not going to do for good for your kidneys. So why don't we try stopping that? But of course, you know, we saw patients with just so many health issues and on so many medications and it was just difficult to fight this fight. Did you ever in your experience, see anyone recover from a kidney disease or reverse kidney disease? Um, so if we're talking about chronic kidney disease, it's one story. If we're chronic, talking about acute kidney failure, it's a different story. Right. So acute kidney failure is something that's precipitated by a relatively acute event, right? And so and usually it's you know either severe hypertension. There's so many causes or medications actually. And a lot of them do have a good chance for recovery, depending again on many other things. But in chronic kidney disease, you basically tell your patients, look, we will be lucky if we can keep you at the level where you're at. Mm -hmm. Because partially because as a nephrologist, as a kidney specialist, you start seeing patients very late in the game. So they come to you, most of their kidney function is gone. So it's called chronic kidney disease uh, stage three or four. And at this point, sometimes later, so sometimes they send people to you, they're already literally on the verge of needing dialysis. So very, very few of these patients I have not seen uh, recover their kidney functions. I've had a number of patients whose kidney function we stabilized. And um, unfortunately, and it's a little more complicated story because you know, the markers for kidney disease that we have that are uh, creatinine and GFR, and you might have heard of this uh, mm. terminology, they really don't reflect the degree of actual damage inside the kidney itself. Right. So when, and you can't always just go and, you know, biopsy the patients and look there at their kidney tissue to know how much damage they have. Mm. These procedures are generally only done for certain causes, for certain diseases, right? So if you're just going by the numbers, it's very, very difficult to know. If, if let's say, the 
kidney function by this number is estimated to be 50%, a lot of people would assume that, oh, that should correlate with about 50% of kidney tissue being damaged. Yeah. But that is not how it works at all. <laughs> you can have 90% of kidney tissue damaged, but you still will, because the kidney tissue can compensate. Okay. And uh, even with the residual, whatever, 10, 15% of actual kidney tissue, your kidney can still compensate and produce up to 50% of kidney function. And actually, not a lot of clinicians understand that concept. And I actually suspect that not all nephrologists <laughs> understand <laughs> that. And uh, therefore, we sometimes see people who, you know, they tag along with like 50% of kidney function by the numbers for years and years and years. And then one day they're on dialysis and everybody's like, mm. well, what happened? Mm. Well, what happened is while the numbers remained stable, the kidney tissue continued being destroyed. Right. And because the kidney could compensate, you were not able to see it. So that's- And, and that's their the kidney level. function continued to decline because they were- what dehydrated drinking alcohol and soft drink and eating the wrong diet and taking certain medications and i'm guessing maybe there was toxins or poisons that might have damaged their kidney so i would say um causes which is causes by you know prescription multiple medication prescriptions are number one wow really i would say that but you know if you read the literature, they'll say, oh, it's hypertension and diabetes that are main causes <laughs> of kidney disease. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I don't want to go into a very long sort of uh, clinical discussion, mm. but I now wonder if that is actually true. Mm. And I've been, I, I never questioned that until in the last couple of years when I started basically revising all my knowledge <laughs> And all the concepts that I had. Um, and, you know, I was shocked to uh, learn that actually medications that we prescribe for hypertension control might be one of the causes of kidney disease progression. Wow. Because, it doesn't because, surprise me. <laughs> because we, uh, as nephrologists, we are always taught that, look, if you don't control people's blood pressure and, you know, of course, diabetes, mm. you know, the kidney disease is just going to keep getting worse and then end up, end up on dialysis much faster. But, you know, it's, it, I think part of the issue with research in, in nephrology is that because of what I just explained to you, that concept that the numbers that evaluate kidney function don't necessarily correlate with the tissue damage in the kidney, it's really hard to design proper studies. Right. And, and as we know, a lot of animal studies are not really reflective of what happens in human physiology. Mm. So there's a lot of confusion and mix up and they're not really such great human studies mm. <laughs> in nephrology. And that probably is part of the reason because you can have two patients with the same numbers, with the same kidney function by the numbers, but if one of them has actual kidney damage, kidney tissue damage of 80%, and the other one has kidney damage of 50%, you have no ways of knowing that in right. any way. Even if you take a biopsy. 
Well, I guess that might be the only way. Well, really. the biopsy is never almost ever taken for chronic kidney disease unless oh, okay. it's uh, some sort of acute inflammatory condition such as, you know, lupus nephritis or vasculitis or something like that. So almost never the patient will, like diabetic patients rarely get biopsy. Mm. So you can have two diabetic patients with everything looking the same, but by the numbers. Mm. But one might have actual kidney tissue almost gone and have the same numbers. And there is no way to know that. Mm. So how can we possibly design any good studies uh, looking at the outcomes of interventions, let's say we're looking at the blood pressure control, right? So you take, let's say you take everybody with CKD stage three, kidney, kidney disease stage three, and then you look who will end up on dialysis uh, sooner, right? Yeah. But what is CKD stage three? I'm convinced. And, you know, I, I don't know how much of this you will find in the actual nephrology literature, but it's not being fully acknowledged because then basically we'll just have to shrug our shoulders and say, none of our studies are valid. And they aren't, they cannot be because if you're basing it on the numbers, which everybody is basing it on, it's no matter how good, you know, there are all these debates, how we can calculate the function or GFR. Uh, but it's, it doesn't matter because the function is not a reflection it, it's only partially reflecting the degree of the parenchymal dam of the tissue damage. And, and just for um, like I don't want to get too technical here because we might lose people. I know. <laughs> when you say GFR, you're you're referring to glomerular filtration rate, which is That's like correct. a measure of how many mils per minute the, of blood the kidneys can filter. Correct. That's a filtration of the kidney. Yeah, that's yep. a filtration rate. And uh, so, what's a normal filtration rate? So for it, it's a little bit over 100. It depends on whether you're male or female, but you know, it's a little bit, but for simplicity's sake, we can say that 100 milliliters per minute of GFR correlates to 100% of kidney function. Right. And when, so they have kidney, when there's kidney disease, where would you, like what, at what point do you say someone has impaired kidney function? How low does the GFR need to get? So usually below 60, 60 milliliters per minute is considered to be kidney disease, but you can have kidney disease based on other parameters. For example, if somebody is spilling protein in the urine, that's a manifestation of some sort of kidney disease abnormalities in the filtrating units, which are called glomeruli. So uh, let's say if you have a diabetic patient and they have totally normal kidney function, let's say they have GFR of 100 milliliters per minute, or, you know, we said it's about 100%, right? But if they're spilling protein, then it already tells you that there are some changes to their filtration units. And this could be, you know, at a very early stage, you probably can reverse them, but, you know, the more advanced they are, they can be irreversible. Mm -hmm. And again, depending on what the cause is. So proteinuria is one of the, or, or abnormal quantities of protein in your urine is another marker of kidney disease. So it's not just the GFR. Yeah. Okay. So you can have totally normal GFR, but if you're spilling a ton of protein, then that's usually a very bad sign for the future of your kidney disease. Right. So there are these things. 
but you're right it's becoming quite technical <laughs> yeah but, i just thought that as you were explaining that people might go oh yeah. i don't know what gfr is so i think that was a yeah, good preface to yeah. what you were saying yeah 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 very good so in all those years you never saw someone uh without or anything other than acute kidney failure ever repair or regenerate their kidney function <laughs> Most of patients with chronic kidney disease, I almost have never seen them reverse their numbers. Interesting. Very few. And if they did, it would be only minor reversal. So they would never get completely to normal. Mm -hmm. um, but having said that, again, I want to mention that majority of patients we see in our clinics are, uh, are sent to us at the time when they are very advanced. Mm. So they sent to us, you know, Generally, primary care doctors do not send their diabetic patient to see a nephrologist unless their kidney function is already less than 50%. Because they assume, oh, it's all diabetes, most likely, you know, unless mm -hmm. there's something highly unusual going on. And so there's nothing else to do. You just control their blood pressure, you control their sugars, and shrug your shoulders. So it's kind of like a watch and wait thing. It's like, yeah, your kidneys might be under-functioning. But there's nothing we can do until they're failing and then we'll put you on dialysis and then that's what we can offer. Yeah. All right. It's pretty kind of much, scary. Pretty much. Well, they tell them that, look, we need to control your sugars and we need to control your blood pressures. And, you know, then they throw, we need to control your cholesterol, which is, you know, it's not proven. But, you know, that whole cholesterol thing, I guess I'm upset about it because for years I've been dealing with it and, you know, they base guidelines on very low evidence literature. And then they, they say, okay, we don't have any proof that this works, but we will still recommend that it's done. <laughs> and in the, so you were mentioning before as well, that there's not that much convincing or high quality literature that high blood pressure and high blood glucose causes kidney damage. There are pretty strong studies. The evidence is very strong uh, according to, to what, you know, to what, um, the you know the I should say industry considers strong studies, right? Right. But in my mind and in my experience as a nephrologist, I just figured out that look, um, we do all these biopsies, and sometimes we biopsy somebody who had normal kidney function a few months ago, and we biopsy them because they seem to have had acute renal failure, and they actually have completely uh obliterated kidney tissue, meaning that kidney tissue has been damaged for many, many years. Right. And you just look at these kind of examples and you see them frequently enough where you would say it couldn't have happened over the period of few months in which they developed acute renal failure. Therefore, what these people were going through was they were having their kidney tissue damaged, but the numbers remained stable. And people right. were not paying attention. And, and I've just seen so many of these examples because kidney disease does not give you any kind of symptoms. Which typically, mm. you know, chronic kidney disease, you, these patients have no symptoms. There is no pain. There is no, there is nothing. You really don't have any kind of, you, you can be completely asymptomatic for years and you can have profound kidney disease and not know anything about it. The body's able to maintain function with with damaged kidneys for a really long time. I guess it's testament yeah. to how incredible the, the human body really is. Absolutely. 
And, and that's why I started thinking to myself, so what is the value of the studies that we have when the studies are all based on monitoring kidney function by the blood tests? Yeah. Because we really have no idea what the actual damage of the kidney tissue, because there's no really a very clean cut direct correlation. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I think... Uh, the reason I have never seen it really acknowledged in any textbooks, and I spend hours explaining to my students and residents and fellows uh, that this concept, because it's, you know, and I feel like not even all nephrologists are, you know, at peace with this concept, mm. because then we will just have to say, we cannot study this at all because oh, you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot, like, we can, we, these numbers are meaningless, basically, right? Mm. Uh, so how can you study and say okay i started with every all my patients were at stage three chronic kidney disease and let's say 50 i had 100 patients and 50 of them ended up on dialysis within six months and another 50 ended on dialysis within six years mm. oh and that's because well you really don't know which patient study would start with how much actual uh healthy tissue yeah. because these numbers do not have good correlation. Mm. So, so I, I really honestly, like, I cannot imagine which of our study, and that's my own opinion. It's not, you know, it's not a prevalent opinion among my colleagues. Yeah. But in my view, if, if you don't know how damaged the actual tissue is, mm. then you cannot really compare. That's it's right. like comparing different things. So you cannot compare the outcomes. How? So what is the value of this study? I see what you mean. Yeah. So to me, even if the, even by the, you know, industry, I, and I'm calling medical industry an industry, <laughs> if, if by the industry standards, it's a good, strong study. And yes, it says, you know, the better blood pressure is controlled, the better is outcome. Um, I, I, I don't know how valuable it is in reality, because if we are to, say okay what were we comparing how did we know so the outcomes can cannot be you know they cannot be interpreted in my opinion that's my opinion yeah no it makes it makes sense what you're saying um <laughs> and i i guess you're treating patients at hospital you're teaching students and you're lecturing and you're studying and you're working for years i guess as a nephrologist and then what was it march 2020 came along and then everything changed for you <laughs> yes everything changed so you know uh in the states we uh, this uh, pandemic pandemic was announced uh i believe in middle of march sometime uh and uh from the very start i would come to the wards and I would look, uh, they definitely were uh, sick patients. The, the, I, I cannot tell you what exactly was happening, but I was seeing um, sick patients. What was bizarre to me when I started looking at all of this was uh, there were huge pro-inflammatory markers and like unseen, previously unseen. Uh, uh, I, I think I mentioned in our previous conversation, ferritin is one of the markers that, it's a protein produced in the liver and uh, it is involved in iron metabolism. So in kidney disease, we see a lot of elevated ferritins because they have a lot of issues with iron metabolism. 
these patients had ferritin numbers that I, as a nephrologist, have not seen before in my life. So super high ferritin numbers. And ferritin is also a pro-inflammatory marker. But um, my first thought was, wh what kind of virus does that? Mm. It, it's just not something we have ever seen. We see it in this chronic dialysis patients, I would see ferritin of 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000. These are patients with, you know, we would usually get consulted on patients who were uh, in acute renal failure or like they are advanced CKD, chronic kidney disease, and they wanted us to help with management. But these numbers just didn't fit anything. And they were labeled as COVID patients. Can I say the word COVID? safely <laughs> you can say whatever you want to say on this podcast nothing's off nothing sensitive <laughs> thank you so um it just was very very bizarre and then the other thing that really shocked me was that i would come and they would be um because they, i worked on two two sides of there were two different hospitals that one was veterans hospital another one was university hospital and uh, most of my uh, time was at the veterans hospital, but I would cover calls at the university hospitals and I had a clinic and dialysis unit there. So I would come for my uh, call, scheduled call to be on call. So, you know, on the weekends or holidays or whatever. And I would uh, just look at the list of the patients and there were a number of patients that had very minor issues that they were admitted in the, to the hospital for but they were made do not resuscitate dnr and it was just shocking i was like i was questioning i would ask my fellows because you know i wasn't so much inpatient at the university uh so i would ask them i would say what is going on why are this why is this healthy person made do not resuscitate because like the person is in the hospital. If something happens, the first thing we usually do is resuscitate them. That's usually why you go to a hospital, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this, like, and this is, you know, otherwise, you know, younger or healthier or whatever. Like, this is not a patient who is like on the verge of dying or terminally ill or whatever. Mm. And they just shrug their shoulders and they would just tell me, "Oh, it's just new policies. Everything was new policy." And then uh, what happened, and these were the first two weeks, and then they, they literally told us not to go into the patient's rooms because of the pandemic. And that was completely shocking because I would start seeing, and I actually decided, okay, I, I won't go since they told us uh, the first two weeks. And, uh, you know, I was, I honestly was, it was hard for me somewhere deep inside in my mind, I felt very safe. I didn't think I was going to die. Mm. but somehow but i was like well maybe it's best to be a little cautious i i've had full faith in viruses and everything and um and then one of my friends uh sent me a video from uh david ike and after that i found a video who was talking about andy kaufman's video about how they've never proven the virus existence and so i found that video by andy kaufman and i watched that and, uh, you know, you asked me, did I go and read the papers? I, I didn't immediately go and read the papers. It just immediately made sense to me. I, I can't explain to you why. I, I was just like, oh, my God, this is really what it is. Yeah. There's no any kind of words. What's going on here? And everything immediately just like the light switched 
the colors of life switched, everything switched because, and then I said, okay, well, if there's no virus, I shouldn't be scared. I should start going and seeing the patients myself. And uh, what I was seeing was patients were, um, uh, literally there was hardly any physicians seeing them. They were just nurses. They would keep the catheter, you know, large bore catheters that are supposed to be temporary. They would keep them inside the patient's for weeks. And when I would challenge them and say, you have to replace this catheter, it's not what we do. They said, no, no, it's, it's a new policy. We can do it now. So how long so, would you, would a catheter normally be there? You're saying they kept it in for weeks. The temporary catheter for dialysis, for example, should be there no longer than a week, preferably right. five days, because we know that after that patients start developing much higher chance of developing a serious, serious bloodstream infection. And, um, then you would either have to get a permanent catheter, which is safer and can be you know, kept for a much longer time, or you have to keep replacing it if you cannot put a permanent one. And it wasn't done. I've seen patients with the same catheter for, for more than three, four weeks. And that's like unheard of in our practice. And is this and because I, there wasn't enough doctors, the hospital was overwhelmed, people were scared of getting infected, they, didn't, they wanted less patient contact? So I would say our hospital definitely was pretty busy. I would say maybe a little overwhelmed. I mean, it wasn't anything like patients were waiting on, you know, in the hallways or anything like that. Mm. But they definitely, they had to reshuffle ICUs. They, I believe they closed pediatric ICU and they started um, sending patients down into pediatric ICU adult patients. So they were doing certain reshuffling to accommodate more patients. Having said that, I need to make a disclaimer because our our uh, hospital was like a referral center. So, and then at the same time, they closed one of the other large hospitals. So that was very strange. Why would you close another large hospital? Mm -hmm. So a lot of patients were coming to our hospital who might not have needed otherwise. Right. So it was it was really really strange. And then the other thing. <laughs> That was really shocking was, uh, I mean, obviously I had to wear a mask and I asked for an N95 mask because that's, you know, that's the mask that works that you have to wear if you're concerned about respiratory infection disease. And I was given one mask <laughs> and I was told, well, clean it up in between the patients and wear a surgical <laughs> mask on top of it. <laughs> yeah. That's just not how it works. No. There's just no way. And I just couldn't understand, you know, like, yeah, there was, I guess, a big shortage of masks, but like, what? Mm. So, and I said, well, I'm going to be seeing the patients and I would clean my mask in between, but I knew it couldn't have possibly worked. And because uh, I would end up documenting my physical exam, because usually fellows write our notes and as I'm standing, you just write an addendum and you sort of summarize but I would have to actually write down my physical exam myself because I was the only one examining the patient. And um, and I was uh, going in and out and I would see sometimes up to 15, 20 of these COVID patients per day. And I never got sick. I never, ever got sick. I never, mm -hmm. ever got anything. No symptoms whatsoever. And that, you know, that to me is just another confirmation. I mean, if it's a, deadly contagious virus maybe not deadly but contagious 
you know, if somebody is in such a high risk situation using inappropriate uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, right? You would, you should have gotten some sort of infection, which obviously I never did. Maybe the mask protected you. Well, uh, you know, one <laughs> one mask that's uh, cleaned in between the patients. <laughs> that's not designed to be used, actually. No, <laughs> so, that's right. yeah, I kind of doubt it. Then another interesting observation I think I mentioned to you was uh, at one of the hospitals, they had this uh, long desks. They were like long, narrow desks under under. Uh, in ICU by the patient's rooms. And these desks were separate. So, you know, to put equipment and, you know, PPE, uh, you know, gowns and all that stuff. So the desk was, it was one contiguous long desk and it was divided into two parts in the middle. And one part, there was a label, it says dirty. Um. And the other part, it says clean. And so the nurses would put all their stuff on the clean. And there were no six foot different, you know, six six foot distance between these two desks. It was one desk. And you would look at it and you look, how can it possibly make sense to any of them? Did did anybody think about this? Did anyone go, that's a bit weird? Or it was no, everyone just went. No, 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 not at all. I mean, you don't know what people are thinking because sometimes you know you don't ask them. You don't say, "Don't you think this is crazy?" Yeah, <laughs> I would. I would ask them, but um, you know, I would see the nurses putting their very special equipment and gowning up, and then the other nurse would open the door and she would just stick her hand and say, "Hey, can you hand me this?" Or like, it just, you know, these things never made sense to me. Uh, even before, because when we had patients on isolation on the hospital wards and you would have to put the gown on and depending on what kind of infection they had and gloves, and then you walk into the room and there is no stethoscope. There's supposed to be an isolated stethoscope. And so the, my, the, my fellows would just, they take their stethoscope, put the glove on it with their already contaminated gloves. Right. And they'll just start, ex- <laughs> and you'd be like, this isolation scheme doesn't seem to be working properly, but I always told myself, well, I guess the experts know better because I was a very conformist person. And I was like, well, if the experts say it works, then, you know, we should all do that. But when COVID came and after Andy's, uh, and you know, and then of course I jumped right down the rabbit hole and I started listening to so many people and yeah, and more things started coming out and, and then I just allowed myself not to conform anymore. <laughs> so that by not conforming, you mean at work, you didn't put on a mask and you... you no, no, no. I That didn't happen right away, although right. I did end up there. But um, I just allowed myself to critically think about things because right. I think before I, I just... If things didn't make sense... I tended to tell myself, oh, that's probably because you are not smart enough to understand them. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how I dealt with that. <clears throat> and yeah, I always thought, it to okay, the virologists. well, you know, you know, they're experts, they know better. And, you know, if you don't understand it, then you're just not good enough to understand it. <laughs> yeah, you're just and, a doctor. Uh, what would you know? <laughs> and, and then it was very liberating, actually, because first of all, I wasn't scared and 
there were some things that I did good. And actually, I, I'm telling you, I was sometimes the only person seeing these people. And even though it was behind the mask, but still it was some sort of human interaction <clears throat> because visitors were not allowed either. And that was another thing that was completely shocking and just very painful to see that. So we as nurses or you know, respiratory therapists, they could go in and out of the room, but the family member who, you know, and the patient might be very critical or dying, were not allowed. Mm. That was just horrible to watch. It was yes. just very heartbreaking. And and I was told, this is the policy. This Everything was a policy. Everything became mm. a policy. There was no thought process. All the things were, I mean... <laughs> They were, they, this uh, people, you know, doctors not seeing patients probably lasted for good several weeks, maybe a couple months. And um, I was, and I was the only one sometimes going into the room and examining the patient and finding things. And uh, it was shocking to me because uh, as a nephrologist, the physical examination is important, but it's not maybe so crucial. But I would see infectious disease consultants who would write on the chart that the patient was not examined due to pandemic policies. Right. And I was in shock because like for an infection disease doctor not to actually go and look at the patient's body, I mean, physical exam and finding the source of infection is like <laughs> yeah. crucial. Like you cannot, like I always admired my infectious disease colleagues because they would go and they examine every orifice and everything where we would not look maybe and they would find some source of infection, but that wasn't happening anymore. They all did chart reviews for, you know, a good number of weeks. And I was just in total shock because that's not medicine. If you're, and not, then examining, they... if you're not examining a client, how do you know if they're getting worse or better? Or like That doesn't make any sense. Chart review. Right. And, and they were even, uh, so they were even uh, doing something with the billing because obviously you still want to bill for your services, right? So um, they allowed to use a certain billing when you did not examine the or or like you could be at a higher level if you just looked at the patient through the glass window of the room. <laughs> it was it was I'm telling you the whole medical uh, the whole medical paradigm just um, crashed. Like in for me it happened after these two talks, David Icke and Andy Kaufman. And it like I listened to this within a week and it was for well the good thing, it was very liberating mm. in many senses, not just in the sense of not being scared of the virus, but even to allow myself to say, look, maybe you're not that stupid. Maybe these things really don't make sense. <laughs> because before I just was never going there. You know what? Mentally, I would just like, if something didn't make sense, I would be like, oh, okay, well, I'm not good enough to understand it. Yeah. And the same stands for, you know, my understanding of kidney disease, there are a lot of kidney disease uh, that are usually considered to be acute and inflammatory, so we call them glomerulonephritis. And uh, glomerulonephritis is something that you usually diagnose with biopsy. They present with very drastic acute renal failure, and people sometimes have blood in their urine and lots of protein and 
they can have systematic uh, manifestations, systemic manifestations, extra renal manifestations. So usually nephrologists are get, getting excited because, oh, it's something very interesting. And you can biopsy somebody and take a look at the tissue. And um, I don't know if you guys in naturopathic school studied glomerulonephritis too much. A little bit. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's one of the most confusing probably things in nephrology that uh, I know other than nephrologists who spent two years studying it, just that a lot of people are just very confused. And I would always sit down with the residents or whatever uh, fellows and I would say, okay, we just have to understand glomerular disease as what is the pathological lesion. So you take the piece of the tissue, you send it to a pathologist and they give you a description of it and they'll say, okay, it's uh, membranous disease or focal segmental glomerular sclerosis or a membrane proliferative. And I'm apologize for throwing all this terminology that's boring, but it just describes a different picture that mm. the pathologist will see. Mm. But it can be caused by 10,000 of different diseases. Mm -hmm. And of course, out of these 10,000 different diseases, half of them were infectious diseases. And it was very interesting because, for example, hepatitis C could cause two completely different lesions. And hepatitis B could cause two. And then it turned out that even HIV, which was considered to be a classical uh, 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 collapsing, it was called collapsing for FSGS, focal glomerular sclerosis. Oh, now we have this new other lesions. And deep inside now that I'm rethinking this whole concept, it just made no sense. And then you almost never find the virus in the tissue. So it's like, how would the virus, the same exact virus will cause this one lesion in one patient and a completely, absolutely, utterly different lesion in another patient. Mm. So how can it be? You know, mm. it didn't make sense, but I would always sit down with my residents and I would always show them and I explained, yes, you know, it just happens so that this same virus can cause three different lesions. <laughs> and don't ask me why, <laughs> because I myself have no idea, but that's just what it is. And that's how it is. And now, and, you know, as I was reevaluating everything I've learned in medical school <clears throat> and in my training, I'm thinking that's a complete nonsense because most likely these diseases are caused by <clears throat> something completely different. Maybe some toxins, maybe some poisons. And speaking of this, I, again, I, because my mind have changed so much, I started paying attention to vaccine his story and history. Hmm. which I never did before. And guess what? Just uh, between, uh, I would say, from 2020 to 2021, within like maybe a little over a year, I saw two patients who I firmly believe developed glomerulonephritis, that, you know, drastic acute kidney disease with all these horrible things. Within, within uh, two to four weeks after getting flu vaccine, which is something I would never have even looked at before, no. but I started looking at it and I was like, you know, and one of them actually presented with positive COVID test. Right. And uh, he didn't have any COVID symptoms. He didn't have any respiratory symptoms. He had acute glomerulonephritis. That's what he had. He had blood in his urine. His uh, kidney function was less than 10%. 
he had tons of protein in his urine. So something acutely damaged his kidney. And when we biopsied him, we saw this very atypical, you know, kind of two different lesions. And of course, um, there was, and you went, usually with these patients, you go back into their history and then you screen them for all the viruses uh, and some other diseases. And for him, everything was negative. The only thing was his COVID positive test. Mm. And, um, and then, but I talked to him a little bit more and I looked at his chart. Luckily at the veterans hospital, you can see everybody's uh, vaccination history. And indeed, two weeks before he presented with his horrible, horrible kidney problem, he was given um, influenza shot. Interesting. Yes. And, and, and you never thought about this before? You'd never never, I, I would never elicit this history, none whatsoever, which is uh, kind of sad because I did write a chapter on um, uh, in the book on kidney disease for integrative medicine textbook. Right. And actually, I remember looking at um, when I was writing about medication excipients, which are additives to keep medication stable. These are called excipients. There are a bunch of uh, kidney lesions described. You know, there are like case studies or and vaccines was definitely on this list. And multiple different vaccines have been shown cases that were associated by vaccinations. But even though I wrote this chapter several years ago, it never, you know, it never cut. I, I thought it was something super rare that happens. You know, I would never look into the history of vaccines for any of my patients. And look how interesting, like, it's very well known that vasculitis, you know, that inflammation of blood vessel that can affect kidney very profoundly and in a very bad way, they mostly happen in winter time. And people, a lot of people say, oh, that's probably because people get all these viruses. Mm. But now I think we need to go back and revise this knowledge and thinking process because we need to look, you know, is that correlated with people getting uh, flu or pneumonia vaccines that are frequently given out in the fall time? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just think about it for 20 years, I'm doing, I'm practicing nephrology and just all of a sudden, within one year, I see two cases associated with influenza vaccine. Mm. That, and then almost uh, within six months from introduction of COVID vaccine, there were case report of, I believe, over 20 cases, if my memory is not lying to me, it's some huge amount of acute renal failure precipitated in association with COVID vaccine. And it was published in a nephrology journal. I presented it to my colleagues. My colleagues... You know, that's a horrible, other, that, that's a whole other story. Actually, it is horrible because none of them wanted to hear anything. And they kind of all went along with the COVID narrative. They all, um, they all got vaccinated and they all just went along with it. Mm. Uh, but getting back to vaccines and kidney disease. So there is Dr. Suzanne Humphreys. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yes. And I did, I only just discovered her in 2020. She's and a nephrologist too. She's a nephrologist. Yeah. yeah. She she well, she used to be a very successful sorry, there are flies here. That's okay. They used to be a success successful nephrologist. And um she I think had to leave her uh, practice as a nephrologist as well because she was pointing out that uh yes, vaccines are dangerous and they can cause renal failure. And she wasn't 
allowed to speak uh, her truth and mm. you know it's i am I'm, I'm wondering if she has much more uh sort of cases or materials that she have observed mm. but uh i presented both of our cases in our uh conferences right. and uh uh, and so I I presented, um, there was another interesting observation I probably should mention, but I presented this both cases and my colleagues just said, oh no, you should have looked for a virus in the tissue. <laughs> they were not interested in hearing about this. So I, I don't know if I convinced them because one case was completely clear cut. The patient got his uh, flu vaccine and within two weeks he presented with horrible acute renal failure and there was no other precipitating factors, mm. none. But he did test positive for COVID. Right. The other no case was- No respiratory symptoms. No, none whatsoever. And the other patient, he, he just had a little more complicated medical history, but also very clear cut time association with uh, flu vaccine that he presented with uh, less severe renal failure, but also renal failure and ended up biopsying. And um, uh, the other interesting discovery I made was uh, that ventilators are nephrotoxic. Nephrotoxic meaning they can kill your kidneys. Oh, okay. And just imagine, I have been a, an academic nephrologist for almost 20 years. And I had no idea that kidneys can be damaged by the positive pressure ventilation. So oh, that really? was another patient. Yeah. So this isn't like common knowledge among nephrology? No, no, it's not common knowledge at all. Wow. It's not. It's definitely not in any textbooks. And none of my colleagues knew about it either when I presented that case. And that was a case of a COVID patient who presented with respiratory symptoms. And uh, he ended up being intubated who had no other past medical history, other post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was obese. So uh, completely normal kidney function, nothing. Uh, he gets intubated. And when I went back and studied his chart, I think they intubated him because of their policy, because this patient had very low saturations, but uh, at that time, they were still very aggressive with intubating patients. And, you know, now we know it was a very dangerous thing to do. And a lot of these patients probably did not need at all any kind of intubation. They just needed maybe some oxygen. So when I went back to his chart, you know, this usually you look at patients having hypertension or some very severe systematic infection, systemic infection, and then they end up uh, in intensive care unit intubated and their acute renal failure because of all these factors. Right. But in this gentleman who was in his mid fifties, there was nothing else. He was never with low blood pressure. He did have fever, but he's had fever for a long time. It wasn't like anything. It wasn't some horrible fever. Uh, and within 24 hours after he was put on the ventilator, intubated and put on ventilator, they called us for a consult for anuric acute renal failure. Anuric means the patient is not making any urine. If you're not making any urine, that means both of your kidneys are knocked out 100% because that's like, there's no kidney function left there. And I was, again, I was talking to my resident. I said, do you guys like want to look into this? Because it's just weird. Like I have never seen a case like this. And none of them volunteered. So I did myself look into it. And actually there is 
both human and animal literature, uh, some of it is quite old, that does show that uh, positive pressure ventilation can cause acute renal failure by mm. itself. Interesting. And it's uh, not, it's published, it's published studies, but it's not in any of the textbooks. Sorry to interrupt so, you. Do you know earlier when you said you saw patients with very high ferritin levels, were these yeah. patients intubated as well? Um, That's a good question. I want to say not all of them, but I don't, okay. you know, this was over two years ago. Yeah. And I didn't record it, so I don't want to say something that's untrue. Yeah. I would say they were pretty critical, mm-hmm. but I would say some of the patients we saw on the floor, even, um, I think they also had, they, they, they would get this COVID panel, and that would include D-dimer and C-reactive mm-hmm. uh, uh, protein and ferritin, and most of the numbers were very high. Mm-hmm. So clearly there was some sort of um, so when people tell us, okay, well, if there's no virus, what is making people, or you're not believing that people got sick and died from it. <laughs> well, people definitely were sick from something. Um, but because the virus has never been isolated, it could not have been from the virus. Yep. Uh, so we definitely need to find out what it was from. Mm. I had a patient who told me that, uh, she is very scared of the virus because she knows many of her patients who died from it and um i asked her and she said yeah we all lived in the same close by neighborhood so i knew them all so that's interesting that's like um low income um housing in chicago area and she reports you know a number of patients who got sick and died i don't know i don't know what it was Mm. i and, you know, people make fun of us the, about 5G, but there is enough research that 5G is uh, an endothelial dysfunction um, pathogen, a potent- so potentially it can. I mean, there are publications. People can look it up. So I, I don't know. I, I cannot tell you what exactly was going on. It was, and I think it was almost on purpose, so confusing, so that even... Even us as physicians, it was very difficult to understand what's going on for us. Mm. Uh, And so I can see how maybe a lot of them got scared, especially initially. But how did they sustain this for now going on the third year? That that is something I don't understand. Mm. Because, you know, you saw people you know, living normal lives, but they would walk into the hospital, put their mask on and pretend like that's what's working, which, you know, I, I literally, my, my, my group, uh, my, uh, section, um, we have graduation ceremony for our fellows. And, uh, I think, uh, in this every summer, so July, the, the fellows graduate and usually we take them out for dinner to some nice restaurant. And in 2020, they did not go out. It was a Zoom graduation party, which was horrible. <laughs> and then in, 20, <laughs> in 2021, they did all get together. Uh, and I didn't go because I didn't want to wear a mask. But then I saw the pictures and they're all standing together and, um, you know, taking picture together. Right. So there, maybe they felt that they were safe because they were vaccinated at that time. I don't know, but 
too many things did not and should not have made sense to people and yet people went along with it mm. so that's a whole other phenomenon how come how come of two hospitals that i was at i was the only doctor only physician who said no that doesn't make sense i cannot play with it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and you didn't go along with anything either. So and that ultimately led to you not being able to practice medicine anymore. Well, I I I played the game for about a year and a half. Uh, uh even after I've learned about it, I did wear a mask. I um you know, I they checked my temperature. <laughs> Although um uh anyways, I I um I was waiting for something to happen and for people to change their mind, probably for a good first 12 months. I just kept thinking, oh, one more thing will come out and people will wake up or, mm -hmm. okay, now that this is known, you know, and I just kept waiting and, and also it all tied up in all the political situation in our country and elections and all that. And then uh, somewhere a year later, I was like, no, it's not changed. And then, oh, and then... um. Yeah, by spring of 2021, all my colleagues were vaccinated. And actually, it's interesting because I had conversations with a number of my fellows. Uh, and at least three of them told me very, well, it, it was a private conversation between me and the fellow that they really didn't want to take it, but they had to. <laughs> because they so, wouldn't be able to work if they didn't have it. Yeah, they, they said, look, look, they would say, and I would talk to the fellows. Uh, sometimes if we had a, you know, private conversation, I would tell them about my beliefs and my views and my research. And um, some of them said, you know what, Dr. Lidberg, you might be right, but you know what, I I just have to take it. I have no other way, you know. Yeah, they I got need mortgages to pay and bills to pay. I, I need my job. They needed their yep. job. Well, yeah, like well, so... So that's like, that was in my mind, a horrible violation of Nuremberg. And, uh, you know, it, it was just hard to watch. I told them about exemptions. So they did have that choice, but they chose not to take it because they're really busy, I guess. And they just didn't want to deal with it because that was just another hassle. And they would make you get tested and all that. So, and then I just started looking at my exit options. <laughs> And uh, just kind of processing. Uh, so after a year of this, and when I realized that, no, it's not going anywhere. Oh, and I made all these presentations and the reception in my uh, division or section or whatever you want to call it was just, there were no comments. People didn't want to engage into this conversation. And I did honestly try. And uh, basically people stopped talking to me. <laughs> I mean, we were been... already... We were already not meeting frequently, but even like uh, like on the phone, people people like I used to have junior members of the faculty call me to ask. They stopped calling me like they didn't want. <laughs> so I definitely yeah. realized that I'm not getting anywhere. So I just decided I need to get out of this because I cannot like I cannot play in this. And I would watch patients being killed. I, I literally would watch. I, I had a patient who was admitted with COVID, she said, I do not want to be intubated. And that's from me reading the chart. And um, then what they did, she they put her in ICU because of the low saturations of the oxygen, as they did. 
And then they, uh, for whatever reason, they were trying to put a, a dub of tube, which is a feeding tube into her. And the patient was fighting them or something like that. So they placed the tube into one of her bronchi. And, and that's a feeding tube. It shouldn't be in the bronchus. So uh, then, oh, the patient said, you can only intubate me if it's the last resort, mm-hmm. right? So, and I'm reading all this all in the chart. So uh, they uh, they then write, okay, the patient is now agitated. We will have to sedate and intubate. Uh-huh. So they screwed up. And then they intubated her because they screwed up and because it was more convenient for them. And, and that was another patient who within 24 hours was in a neurocranial failure. And when they called me to dialyze her, um, I, I didn't even have time to write the orders for dialysis. She expired Jeez. within 24 hours. And that, that was another patient who was middle-aged relatively not too many comorbidities except for obesity and and also she was on remdesivir for five days before they called me Mm. so they put her on remdesivir which we know is very nephrotoxic Mm. so remdesivir was a whole other story i had to fight it i would come in after being uh off for the weekend and my colleagues were on call and my patients with already advanced chronic kidney disease was on remdesivir and i would tell the fellow why did you guys not stop remdesivir over the weekend what and the fellow would tell me well the attending didn't tell me to so the the relationships is we as an attending we review the fellow's work and we guide them and you know we you know so we supervise them in in Mm. medical care and all that stuff so it was just unbelievable. I I couldn't explain why would one of my colleagues not stop nephrotoxic medication and somebody with advanced renal failure. It the, the, I had a conversation with a pharmacist who insisted on giving remdesivir on my dialysis patient, uh, who at that time on was on continuous dialysis because they were on ICU. And I said, no, you cannot give this medication on dialysis. And she said, oh no no no, it's can because you keep them on this continuous therapy which is called CVVH because it removes it and. I looked at the actual study that she sent me and the study actually is for super intensive dose of this uh, dialysis treatment, which we're not, we were not providing it to this patient because of multiple different circumstances, but he was not getting anything like that treatment that was described in the paper. Uh-huh. And so I personally had to call the pharmacist and say, no, you absolutely are not to give it because but the pharmacist had no concept what she was doing. She just read the article that said, oh, if the patient are on this continuous treatment, we can give it. She never read the actual article to look at what kind of dose of dialysis was delivered. So they were just, you know, yeah, they they they, they would not give people. And, you know, I'm not a proponent of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin because we don't know. I, I mean, how can we have studies for early treatment based on tests that is not testing for anything, right? So I'm not a proponent for that, but maybe as a last measure or definitely as instead of remdesivir. Mm. But uh, there was a clear cut, uh, again, it was like, oh, policy, no, we cannot give that. What is the policy based in? No, no discussion, no, nothing. So you couldn't get anywhere with that. Um, I tried to prescribe vitamin Ds and melatonin and uh you know some like uh integrative medicine type of things mm-hmm. for this patient but you know they were critically ill patients it probably would not make made difference but the interesting was people would just like 
frown at me and say, what are you, why are you recommending this stuff? And I'm like, well, we have it on our formulary. We can give the vitamins. What's the big deal? Why don't you give it? And I say, where is the study? What? <laughs> so well, these yeah. are not good studies. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's just, it just was not possible for me to participate in that mm. at some point. And then um, my dialysis patients uh, were prescribed COVID vaccine. And I said, I don't want to prescribe it because, oh, it's for their convenience. They all want it. So I went and I personally talked to every single patient of my dialysis shift. And I said, uh, if you want this vaccine, I want you to understand that it's not tested. We don't know how it's going to work for you. We don't know if it will protect you. And we don't know how safe it is. So I have about 24 dialysis patients uh, on my shift. Out of 24 people, at least uh, several of them told me, oh, we know it's uh, we know that it's experimental. I still want it. Two said, oh, we didn't know that it wasn't tested. We thought it was safe. And I said, no, it's not safe. We have no idea what it is uh, and what it will do, especially for you because you're a dialysis patient. And guess what? And they're like, oh, yeah, then I probably don't want it. A week later, I come in and they got it. And I said, why did you take it? They said, oh, because all my other doctors told me that I should take it. And then there were two patients who said, I'm not taking this thing. <laughs> I said, good. <laughs> so they they happened, already know. Did anything happen? Like you've got 24 dialysis patients there in the hospital and you're telling them all that there's this experimental well, I, I had, so, and that's another thing I want to report. So once the vaccines uh, started coming out and being given to the patients, there was no inquiry um, about this vaccine history whatsoever, even though everybody knew it was, a physicians knew it was an experiment treatment. So if somebody comes in and they have, let's say, acute bleeding or new tumor or new stroke or heart attack, there was no history of vaccination in the chart. I had a patient who, uh, so of this dialysis patient, one of them had bleeding, uh, which, you know, it's dialysis patients have a lot of comorbidities. And also my veterans that I saw on the other side of the hospital, uh, mostly are very elderly and tons of comorbidities. So yes, I understand it's hard to inquire. If you have an 80 year old patient Mm. who comes in with an acute myocardial infarction uh, day after the vaccine, you know, maybe you can say, okay, we, we don't know. But but at least documented in the history, it was not done. Mm. And moreover, I had a patient who was a young patient who had a transplant and lived with his transplant uh, successfully for over five years. Okay. And he was transferred to our institution with all these horrible acute issues and he had a very big uh, uh, embolus. Uh, no, sorry, it, it was um, deep vein thrombosis. And I asked him, do you know if you got it before or after your vaccination? And he said, yeah, I definitely know it happened. All of this happened to me after I got my, my second Pfizer. Hmm. And I said, did you talk to it about, did you talk to your doctors about it? And he said, no. They, he said, yes, I, but none of them say anything about it. They just don't say anything. I said, was it was it um, reported to their system? And he said, no, nobody uh, nobody reported it. And I think he didn't even know what that was. So I myself reported several cases. Um, you know, at an early when when I still was you know working and 
they they uh the uh, there's a month later they send me requests for some specifics on their charts and like it made they made it very difficult so i had to open the charts and copy and paste and fax it to them so you know that's another part of it is like it's it's a time consuming process doctors are busy they don't mm. want to spend more time on something so these things were just not acknowledged uh, frequently the history was not obtained and so it's like almost people didn't want to see mm-hmm. you know, so it's That's the picture that i'm getting yeah, yeah it, and as far as my colleagues, they all got it. And none of them, as far as I'm aware, had any issues, which is interesting. And were, you, we can... were you reprimanded by telling your patients to be cautious about taking the injection? Uh, no, no, I was not. Uh, one of the patients complained about me. Uh, and But he didn't, he worded it in a different way. So it wasn't. Maybe because people didn't know, because I mean, I I did it during my round, so there were no other people around, and maybe yeah. patients did not report that I said that. Uh, in my clinics, I mostly told if asked, and sometimes if not asked, I would tell people, and my patients would tell me. But everybody else tells me to get it, and I would say, well, I I'm telling you, it's not a safe vaccine. We don't know anything about it. <clears throat> And then I would uh, have a, a, one of my patients was a lupus patient with stable kidney disease. She was kind of hesitant. And I told her that it's really difficult. I would strongly recommend against this taking this vaccine. So her primary care doctor sent me an email stating that, what do you base this uh, recommendation on? And to which I replied that uh, this vaccine has no studies and I'm basing it in the fact that we don't have any knowledge of the safety of this vaccine, especially in the setting of uh, patients with kidney disease. And she didn't respond any. And and then I asked her, isn't that what we all should be uh, consulting our patients about? And she never responded to me. (laughs) So no, I wasn't reprimanded. Either it was not maybe it was not known because I would have these conversations between me and patients. I wouldn't do it like in front of a big audience, mm. but yeah, I, I did not have any uh, repercussions from this, but um, what happened and maybe I should just tell you this last part of it. Cause we've been going on for a while. <laughs> I don't want to bore people, but uh, an interesting part of the story is how I ended up um, without a job at, uh, Mm. I'm a fire doctor, which is a new, new, <laughs> I would say this is a new kind of doctor in the, in this country, I guess. Mm. Um, So I kind of started thinking about how to exit because I, I, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, but I knew I couldn't continue doing that. And then also I've been learning so many other things about medicine that frankly, even if the whole COVID thing just went away and disappeared over one night, I don't know if I could go back anyways, especially with knowing what I know now, because uh, I I would disagree with so many things. Like how can, like if somebody comes to me on antibiotic, how can I, you know what I mean? And, and mm. getting and prescribing hepatitis B vaccinations to my dialysis. I, you know, there's so many things. There's so many things that just been completely, revisioned in my mind and my whole approach and knowledge of medicine would not let me 
it would be unethical for me to continue uh, being paid for something, doing something. I, it's completely against my <clears throat> beliefs anymore. Mm. But um, what happened was I came across, uh, as I was, you know, I was composing my resignation letter. I wanted to make it an open resignation letter. And I came across a group uh, that was uh, helping uh people in San Francisco who, who were hit by vaccine mandates because mandates didn't come until summer of 2021. And they came to our hospital as well. And, uh, but we could get religious exemptions. We didn't have any issues. So religious exemptions, no problem. Within one day you get it. So um, I came across these people and they were talking about the common law and the common law or otherwise also known as law of the land, natural law, or God's law. And that's the highest law. Probably in any country, I don't know, I'm guessing in Australia also. Yeah. And uh, I decided to go with the process that that group was talking about, about fighting mandates, because I just wanted, I didn't, I felt like just resigning was kind of like leaving without doing anything, like without standing it. Or doing it, and I kept wanting to do something, but short of standing in front of the hospital and screaming "stop it all," <laughs> I really couldn't come up with any ideas. <laughs> because you know, I'm not like I'm not any kind of blogger or any. I I really kind of wanted to do something, and so I thought, okay, I'll go. I'll go with the common law process against them. So. I studied that with a group and uh, I served um, common law. Uh, it, it's a process called notice and opportunity. So you serve personally um, somebody who you believe, you know, have a power of making decisions, I guess. Um, and uh, you tell them, this is my notice that you're, it, you kind of treat your approach to everything as a contract. So mandate is really not a law. And then you, if approach it as a contract, it's an offer, right? So they're making me an offer to test and take religious exemption and all that. And I said, well, um, and I used mostly the template that the group provided, but I also added. So you, you say, okay, I will uh, comply with your request if you prove to me that the following are not right. I, I mean, I'm making it primitive, but the essences and then yeah. we had like 42 averments that's these are called averments so there are conditions that they have to prove to me that these are wrong and among them were that it's lawful like legal aspects of that and you know the safety of tests and vaccines and masks and all that so it was all there and i also added 42nd averment we had 42 41 averments my 42nd averment upon the proof that uh and at that time, Christine Massey's uh, group uh, had 180 or FOIA requests that said, no, we don't have isolated virus. And so my last government said, upon the proof that <laughs> the 180 uh, uh, FOIA requests from 36 countries did not state that they do not have isolated virus. <laughs> and of course, they ignore you. They don't respond to you. And you go through the process. There are several notices that you need to send. And once they, you know, and basically you tell them that look if you don't respond then you violate uh your offer and then i'm not income i'm not going to then you know your offer is off the table right mm. and so if you continue uh your measures against me then you're going to be violating my rights 
So um, I went through this whole paperwork. It took me about a month to send all the notes and I sent it both to the president of the university and the medical director of the veterans hospital. And uh, they did not respond properly. There were some responses from the lawyers at the university who basically just threatened me. And then after I went through this, it was already uh, like end of October, I believe. I said to myself, well, they're in violation of everything. I did my proper due process. And now I have to start acting because uh, they, you know, I have to stand strong with my words because I told them that that's not right. Mm. So I uh, reversed my uh, religious exemption <laughs> on at the university. I never ended up asking for it at the VA. And uh, I said, okay, well, I have to be brave and I brave and I have to stop wearing masks. I stopped testing the university. I had to take a few tests. Um, luckily, it was a sputum test. And um, and uh, the university allowed me to show up in the clinic a couple times. And then <laughs> then they sent me a horrible letter that that you're banned from coming on campus and your computer access is taken away and everything and i just i i was already kind of preparing the backout plan i knew that i will be fired and i thought i'll be fired within a week or two so i was like okay i was going to resign this way i'll just you know i do I'm, i'll make my statement and i'll get fired so it was very interesting how it all developed because <laughs> and you were walking around the hospital with no mask on i was walking at the veterans hospital i was walking without a mask every day and at the university only on my clinic day because I only had a clinic there and my dialysis shift. Because I was just thinking, and- um, if I was in hospital and uh, I saw a doctor walk, everyone else is walking around with a mask and I saw one doctor walking around with no mask, I'd be like, I want that doctor to look after me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that doctor. <laughs> Well, the patients were not dragging me by my <laughs> sleeves to see them. They're but all I, I, think, of you. I will tell you, no, actually, interestingly enough, uh, when I was in my clinics and I've been doing it all the, you know, for a long time, I would not wear a mask even before all of this. And I just was kind of like, oh, I'll just, get... and also when I was teaching the residents, I told the residents, you guys, if you feel uncomfortable with me not wearing a mask, please tell me I'll arrange for remote learning for you because I'm not going to be talking to you with, with a mask on. And I even gave all my presentations, I gave uh, two of them were not online in presence. I stood in front of the you know, board and I would take the mask off and nobody said anything. And frankly, I only had one patient tell, asking me to put the mask on of, for all of this time. That's good. Yeah, so, and it was very strange that no police stopped me and uh, like, I would enter the veterans hospital through the, uh, they would put the, you know, there was guard there making sure everybody was masked and temperature was taken. So I would put a mask on, enter the hospital because I didn't want to create a big, big scene at that time. And then I would proceed, take it off and I would walk all day long without it. And like, yeah, mostly people did not say anything. Maybe towards the end when they finally started confronting me. But on the university, they did something funny. They um, So they banned me from coming to the hospital because I was non-compliant and I was seen not wearing a mask and when I told them that look it is a matter of a legal process between myself and the president of the hospital they didn't want to hear anything about this they, and in this process of notice of an opportunity when you send the notices 
you're right. Notice to principle is uh, notice to agent. Notice to agent is notice to principle. And the meaning of this uh, statement is that if you send these completely lawful notices, it applies to all of them, not just that person you send it for, to, to their superiors and to their inferiors. Right. So in my mind, you know, and I knew it, I knew that they will ignore it. I, I was prepared, trust me, I was prepared that they will ignore it. But they obviously ignored it. They they said, we have no idea what you're talking about to us. And then what they did, they did something interesting. Instead of firing me, they suspended my clinical privileges. And then I had a whole hearing because as somebody with suspended clinical privileges, I had a right to appeal. Right. And so I went through a whole appeal process and... <laughs> I did it because I just felt that I had to, you know, I had, I didn't really want to go through the appeal. I just mm -hmm. was ready for them to <laughs> let me go. But I did it out of principle. I wanted to tell these people what I really thought. And uh, <laughs> I hired Andy Kaufman and I, Christine Massey volunteered. I asked her and she volunteered. And we presented the panel that hospital appointed to look into my case uh, we presented them with the data and Andy did a brilliant job showing, going over all the studies and showing to them uh, that there is no evidence of virus isolation. And um, it was very interesting when I got a final, uh, you know, final, uh, they, they sustained, of course, my suspension. But when I got the final write up from the panel, which I'm sure was written by their lawyer, it said that even though uh, we don't really, it, I can read the wording for you, but basically it said, you know, it doesn't matter really it whether a virus exists or doesn't. <laughs> it's not this panel's job to decide on that. <laughs> what <laughs> What is important for this panel is that you violated the policy. Oh, my and gosh. during the hearing I was presenting to them, there's actually a law in our country that policy has to be based in evidence. It's a law because you cannot just tell somebody, oh, in order to come to work tomorrow, you have to cut off your left pinky finger. You have to base it in evidence, right? It's pretty self-evident. But they didn't care about any of this. They just said, oh, she violated policy. Therefore, she's gone. Doesn't matter if there's a virus or not. Our policy no. says this. So get this. They never fired me. They just waited for my contract to expire because, you know, an academic institution, you have yearly contracts. They never fired me, Daniel. They kept me on their staff, not allowing me to even have a computer access until the expiration of my. Uh, uh. So is it is it a win? No, I mean, it depends on how you look at it, but maybe in a way it's a win. And then even more interesting things happened on the veterans. So that veterans hospital is a federal, uh, you know, federal hospital, right? So what they did is they gave me several notices. Um, they, they invited me to, to the chief of the med medicine department. Uh, and they had conversations with me. And every time they would say, well, do you realize that you're in violation and you're not vaccinated and you're walking around without a mask? And I would say, it's a legal matter between myself and medical director. And you should all be aware of more of all the circumstances because, you know, this this is a legal uh, process. Mm. And I would say, well, you are now, you know, you're now forewarned and, you know, and, and then so I could, and I kept thinking, well, they're they're going to fire me tomorrow. 
So from November, when I stopped wearing a mask, they did not fire me officially until March. Right. And and I actually, whole November, I walked around doing consultations, inpatient consultations, teaching the residents not wearing a mask. And they didn't do anything. So just think about it. If this virus, and I would come to the clinics and dialysis unit not wearing a mask. It's like five so if they months, were truly, five months or so. Well, so in March, uh, sorry, in January, they finally put me on unpaid leave and they did a bunch of other stuff. So, but from, so entire, from end of October, entire November, December, and good part of January, I basically did what I did. And if they were so- Good on you for doing that. Good on you. No, seriously. Good on you for having the guts to do that. Because I know people who don't agree with any of this stuff. And um, some of them have worn a mask to walk down to the shop to get groceries because they don't have the fortitude to stand up for what they believe in. So it must have been very difficult for you to do that in two hospitals um, in that setting. So, yeah, good on you for being so courageous. I was scared. I was scared doing it. Uh, But, you know, uh, I have a friend who told me, why didn't you just wear a mask? Like they didn't, because, you know, they never asked me to vaccinate after this procedure. So all they wanted me was to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my friend said, you know, come on, like it, it makes people more comfortable. You want, you know, and she herself works, you know, like as a beautician of some sort. Like, if people ask me, I would always put it on. And I said, well, you know, the problem is that as a physician who knows the truth, I cannot do something that's against the truth. It's just not ethical. It's against, and and, and I know that they are harmful also. So not only I didn't wear it myself, I invited my patients not to wear them. And they, most of them were very happy. So it just and, shows. And you didn't get sick. How do you walk around to hospitals with all these sick people and you didn't wear a mask and you never got sick? How does that work? (laughs) And you weren't vaccinated. Well, I did. I actually did get sick for the first time, maybe in 10 years in November, but I think it had more to do. Sorry, in December. I had, I think it has more to do with everything I was going through because it was just so nerve wracking. And, you know, I had to rearrange my entire life in many respects. And I was going through very, I mean, it was a tough time. Uh, and I think my, uh, my, whatever, you know, that was, and I don't get sick. I don't get seasonal flu or anything like that. Or if I do, it's like half a day or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I got pretty sick. It was, first of all, it happened after I was done with all my clinical responsibilities, it happened December when I was pretty much not seeing that many patients. Right. So that still stands. And before that, I never got sick. And mm-hmm. um, and it just shows you that because these people, they couldn't make anything to make me wear a mask, but they also didn't fire me because they wanted to go through all their loops to be safe, to not be, you know, to not to go they allowed me to work without a mask for almost three months. Hmm. And that just shows you how, is it the actual health concern? Hmm. If you really thought that I was a horrible disease spreader, would you allow me to stay there for a minute? That's right. It doesn't make sense, right? So they, they they were staying with their, whatever their bureaucratic procedures to be safe, 
and allowing the horrible spread of horrible disease mm. that you know that doesn't make sense that just speaks volumes about their true values yeah you're a super spreader <laughs> that's what i am that's clearly what i even though it didn't seem like i spread anything but mm. yeah yeah so that was an interesting adventure and uh you know i i have not uh gotten anywhere with the lawsuits because our uh courts are not interested in a common law lawsuit they they cannot accept it so uh, a lot of us are kind of struggling with it and you know we'll see where that goes but mm. Our law system and, you know, once you go down the rabbit hole of the virus, then you start exploring all these other things. And I'm so proud of Tom Cullen for speaking the truth and sticking with it. And I think this is one very important point that he makes. He says, you know, there's so many truthers in this movement who are saying, look, you know, we don't really need to go down that route. Not many people are prepared and, you know, let's not go there. It's too complicated and people don't want to hear about it. But it just prevents us from knowing the truth. That's right. If we keep saying, yeah, yeah, the, the, the infections cause the disease, then how are we ever going to actually find out what causes the disease? Because then we might not ever find out that we are being actually poisoned and killed in many different ways <laughs> exactly and that's why it's so important to work out what it is actually making us sick because if it is a poison if it is toxicity if it is from living in a toxic modernized industrialized westernized country and and living that type of lifestyle if that's what's making us sick then the answer means we have to deal with all of those things but if we continue blaming a germ that's never been proven to exist or shown disease we never address the elephant in the room. So you're spot on. We we need to, the truth is the truth, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, we have to deal with it. Isn't that what we've always been told? You And then, you know, I, I listened to Del Big Three faithfully because I want to know where he's going. And I respect all of these people, Robert F. Kennedy and even Steve Kirsch, because I think they are saying a lot of important things, but... Uh, for example, I don't listen to Dr. McCullough whatsoever at all. I, mm. I just don't because Malone, I don't listen at all because it doesn't matter. Because if you're going after the truth and they all say, Dale is so big, he always says, we are here to bring you the truth. And and he's not, he's bringing half the truth and he should say that. I'm here to bring you half the truth. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm here to bring you some half truths and, and, and th- it's fine, but just just don't lie because this becomes a lie. And if mm. you know what the truth is, why some people don't even want to look there, that's a whole other question and discussion. I'm not sure I know the answer, but you know, maybe some people are not ready. We're not we're not saying that people aren't getting sick, and we're also not saying no, if not at all. See evidence of a virus causing illness. Fine, cool. We're happy to to accept that. Yeah. But just show yeah. us the evidence. Show us the proof, and that yeah. doesn't exist. So this is why we are of the opinion that we are. And, and let me just, just sorry. Go ahead. Let me just add one more thing about yeah. this. So remember, I told you that we always uh, interpreted a lot of this acute horrible kidney disease called glomerulonephritis in the patient mm-hmm. to viruses 
So how are we ever going to help this kind of people? Because if we st- keep claim- blaming it on the viruses, we will never truly address the actual cause of these health problems. Mm-hmm. So what are the treatments for these things? They, no matter what, they mostly get horrible uh, either cytotoxic or immune suppressive steroid medications. Mm-hmm. That's the most uh, available. Now they have some monoclonal antibodies, some other stuff I don't even want to go into, probably also bad and weird. But cytotoxins, they cause so many health problems, cancers and stuff like that, uh, and anti-cancer therapies, which we know are toxic. So maybe just even if you want to say, I'm a doctor and I'm here to make people to give people health and to be on the side of my patients, I have to admit that no, glomerulonephritis are not caused by any kind of viruses. We have to look for other things. So I'm sorry I interrupted you, Dan, but I just wanted to say there are many reasons why we need to know the truth and why we need to tell it. Yeah, you're so right. And I was having Sorry. Yeah, I interrupted you. So sorry. No, no, it's, I didn't really have anything important to say. Um, I was just thinking the other day that isn't it interesting that this pandemic has made more highly trained, highly qualified professional medical doctors and health professionals turn into crazy conspiracy theorists? That all these professionals just want to throw away everything they've ever worked for for 10, 15, 20 years, everything that they've spent their life doing, they just want to throw it all away by saying, oh, this is this is nonsense, right? And they're doing it because it is nonsense. And they're doing it because they see the truth and they have to stand up for the truth. It's not about being crazy or being conspiratorial or being a liar. It's about what's in here. And can when you understand the truth, um, you have to act congruently because if if you're not acting with what's inside your heart and what's inside your soul, it's a pretty hard life to live. <laughs> it is. And the only comment I'll add to that is we, we don't have enough of them. It should be all of them. It should be all of them. It should be everybody. I To me, I think the biggest part of this process was just getting used to the idea that none of my colleagues were willing to accept that all the nonsenses that were going in front of their eyes, number one, and to explore more and ask more questions. And that basically nobody just said anything. And like I said, I I know people on both sides of the hospitals and they all went along with the vaccine. So I literally know my, like I said, my clerk in the clinic, <laughs> And I know one other pharmacist who didn't, who got a religious exemption. And I know there were some people who were not taking it and getting religious exemption. But as far as standing to all this, standing up to all this nonsense and saying, no, it's just, it shouldn't be done. It's wrong. And and especially after they must have seen that patients were dying from what they were doing. Mm. Maybe not in the first two weeks, but after the first month or two, it was almost carnage. It was just horrible. It was horrible. And not allowing his families to come and to see the patients. And and even, you know, just how how many of my colleagues went along with not seeing patients in the clinic? They would just do telephone appointments. And that was just shocking to see because how can you possibly estimate a volume of the patient who you put on diuretics 
based on telephone conversation. Mm. You need to see them. You can't. And that's just one minor detail. There, you know, it's just you don't do medicine on remote. Like maybe there are special circumstances when it needs to be or can be or should be done, mm. but this should be exception. If you look at how the modern um, are also our hospital switch a new computer system, and I noticed that literally everything could be uh, computerized. So mm. it's like they're preparing everything to become an AI. Because if you can do a telehealth appointment, then computer can do it as well. Yep. You're not needed. And you can literally see like we collect, um, uh, it's called um, uh, system review, review of systems. So you go over every system and you ask them questions. So you can actually do it through the computer and the computer will put a check mark Right. under each review system so how do they not see what's happening in front of their eyes mm. i yeah. i so I, i'm so happy to see that you have so many people coming on and there are many colleagues that are saying no but really it should have been 99 <laughs> percent. well i think you know it's it's hard for people like us to stand up and say that this isn't right Right now, it's hard for us to do that because we're going against the consensus. But I actually believe that one day, the people who didn't stand up and act faithfully and truthfully and stand up for what's right, it's going to be harder for them because they're going to be held to account and they're going to be asked, why? Why didn't you look at this and, and stand up? Why didn't you say something? Why did, why did you go along with it? They will be held to account one day and it's going to be harder for them then to deal with those consequences. So as long as we stand on the right side of the fence and the right side of truth, um, we can't we can't lose. In my opinion, we've already won. It's just a matter of time until we reach that critical mass or that critical tipping point. And however many percentage of the population that needs to be, maybe it's 10% of people need to... You know, be awakened and push back against this and then everything changes. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it will happen. And that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. It's just getting people like yourself who are courageous enough to come out and <clears throat> speak about their story. And this is how people get informed. And this is how people see other people speaking out, speaking the truth, standing steadfast, being courageous, and then it inspires others. So I'm so grateful that you were willing to to come and do that today and i'm very grateful that you were giving me so much time and attention i appreciate it no, I, <laughs> i've been I'm, wanting to get my story out but <laughs> yeah I, i'm so grateful that you were that you were willing to share that um and i know we've been going for a while and i don't <clears throat> i don't want to keep you too yes, much longer but was there anything been... that you wanted to end with any final thoughts uh i would say uh when I was in the position when I had no idea what to do and what to say, if there's anybody who is in this position right now, I can tell them that, uh, you know, if they want any support from me, they can contact me via my email uh, or just talk and discuss. I'm completely happy to do that. And um, all I can say is I know not everybody might be in this position uh, to be able to just cut it off completely. And it's tough one. And you know, I, I'm not 
blaming anybody. I'm just, and I didn't want to come across when I said everybody should have done it. I I mean, my fellows, I know they they just like, they're really stuck and the system is designed in a way to keep people trapped. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe some of us are, can just let a lot of things go. Like I, I can tell you right now, I do have a roof over my head, but you know, I'm leaving off my passion funds, <laughs> which I'm trying to retrieve. <laughs> and I have no, like, I have no idea what, how am I going to sustain my life, but I just hope that, you know, we'll figure it all out somehow. Like we are smart people. We'll, we'll some, the society will need us at some point, hopefully. And there are always some ways. And of course, not everybody can be like Andy Kaufman, who just got his practice going and, you know, I don't have anything like that, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I think, I think it's a tough decision and I fully understand it, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's liberating. It, 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 it will just change the life to the point where you will be happy, even though you might ho- have as much as most of doctors make good money. So <laughs> you will not have as much, that's for sure. But, we there's always i guess some way out and you know if if anybody wants to contact me and talk about it i'm happy to do that although i do not have a recipe <laughs> but just for any support so that's no, very kind and um i always value your time and your expertise and uh i value being able to have this conversation with a like-minded human being first and foremost but also um a like-minded health professional and medical doctor. I, I think your perspective is um, based in fact and it's based in truth. And I am very grateful that you're willing to share that. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.